toxic theology this morning, and uh, it is longer than I thought it would be. I was planning to do a short message, as I normally do, and then what happened is some of your kids hacked your emails, emailed me, said, Pastor Jeff, we're so excited about Sunday school. Uh, Can you just make sure that you preach an extra long message so that we have extra time to maybe watch two or three episodes of Superbook? And I was like, no problem. Uh, I didn't know if today's message was really going to be the last message of my Pandemic Christianity series or the first message of re-entry into looking at the book of Revelation, which we were doing as COVID struck and then took a pause to do the Pandemic Christianity series. But, and the reason why I wasn't sure is because I kind of think it fits both. So I'm using it as a re-entry into the book of Revelation. And especially as we move into a series of chapters and a section of Revelation that is really wacky, really strange, all kinds of signs and symbols. It's a really turbulent part of the book. And so I think I need this message to make sure that we're sort of um, all on the same page around some foundations. Um, But before we leave our series on pandemic Christianity, it would do my heart good if, if stand as you're able Go ahead, you can stand. And um, I challenged us and invited us to um, memorize our key verse from 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14. So let's close our eyes and in one accord declare it together. Be alert. Stand firm in the faith. Is your, pause. You're doing like a billion times better than the 9 a.m. service, I'll tell you that right now. Very good. Be alert, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. Very good. Okay, you can be seated. That's also a good verse through which to evaluate and read Revelation, because Revelation as a book is meant to strengthen and encourage the church. It's meant to enable us to learn to do everything in love. Uh, We've spent about 14 sermons in the Revelation series so far, going through Revelation 1 to 6. Revelation is the final book of the Bible. It comes from the Greek word apocalyptico, which means apocalypse, but that also means revelation. In some translations, your Bible will say the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Revelation is usually preferred as a translation, mostly because of contextual sensitivity. In our culture, apocalypse is almost always associated with some catastrophically bad thing that is unfolded and usually affects, if not a nation, an entire world. That's not what the Greek word means. It literally just means an unveiling or revealing. When you're playing hide and seek with your kids and they hide and then they reveal themselves to you because they managed to outsmart you, that's a mini apocalypse. It's just an unveiling of something which was previously hidden. And this entire book is an unveiling of who Jesus is now as the installed Lord of heaven and earth and what are his plans and purposes for all of history and all of humanity. In chapter 1, this vision is given to John on the island of Patmos where he's been sent to die. Jesus comes to him, reveals himself as the Alpha and the Omega. It's this amazing, powerful vision, highly symbolic. All the symbols speak to Christ's power, Chapters 2 and 3, Jesus has seven distinct messages to seven churches. He usually discloses something about himself, offers an encouragement to most of the churches, 
a rebuke or a challenge to many of them, and then a promise for those Christians who are going to stay faithful to him despite current persecution or persecution that is coming down the pipeline for them. Um, Chapter 4, you have this amazing vision of this throne room in heaven. Uh, I talked about it being the command center of reality. The chapter ends with Jesus being at the center of this amazing worship service. Chapter 5, we're introduced to this scroll that has seals on it, and the call goes out for someone to be able to open the scroll, break the seals, but no one's found worthy to do it. And the seal, uh, the, uh, sorry, the scroll is, is, you know, this isn't the language the Bible uses, but it's almost like a scroll of destiny, that as the seals get broken and the scroll is revealed, God will bring to completion his purposes in heaven and on earth. But no one's found worthy until the lamb that was slain is declared worthy. So Jesus is given a scroll, and then in chapter 6, the seals begin to be opened. And the first four are the fa- uh, famous four horsemen of the apocalypse, four different colored riders that represent different things that are going out as part of God's fulfillment in history. Conquest, war, economic collapse that kind of disproportionately hurts the poor, and death. And then seal five, there's this vision of those martyred um, because of the word of God and because of their testimony. So that's what we've covered up to chapter six. Now, Around chapter 6, with the breaking of the seals, what I also tried to do is introduce you or remind you that there are four pretty distinct tracks of interpretation for Revelation. Many Christians have only been exposed to one. A a smaller amount maybe have been exposed to two or three. Uh, But it's important to know that there are four different and pretty, uh, pretty different ways of reading and interpreting and applying the book of Revelation And as we continue to move through Revelation, I'm going to be mentioning these and tethering some of what we're talking about to these different views, because I'm really convinced one view doesn't do a comprehensive job of holding everything together, and we'll learn a lot, and we can learn a lot if we learn from the different views. First view is the preterist view. Put very simply, everything that we're reading in the book of Revelation, except for the final few chapters of a final judgment and Jesus returning and establishing a new heavens and new earth. But kind of chapters 1 through 19, that has all already happened. And it happened within 10 to 20 years of this book being given. It happened uh, for them at the fall of Jerusalem uh, in the uh, sixth decade of the first century, and all of the attendant chaos and violence and disruption that happened because of that. So preterist like R.C. Sproul, for example, who's a Reformed theologian of note, would say, when we read Revelation, we're studying history that, we're studying history, prophecy that's already been fulfilled. The next is the uh, historicist view, and they would say, the way to read Revelation is if you were to stretch out the chapters, um, these weird signs and symbols and events map onto very significant particular events or people in world history. Protestant Reformation, or maybe the printing of the Bible, or the expansion of Christianity to different parts of the world, or the beast, uh, pretty famously by some historicists, the, the great beast or the whore of Babylon is connected to the Roman Catholic Church. So the, let's just go back for a sec, Dan. For the historicist perspective, um, 
I mentioned uh, R.C. Sproul for the Predator's perspective, and I'm not a huge fan of this one, but I understand where the ideas come from. Some pretty prominent theologians you may have heard of who were historicists in their reading of Revelation were Martin Luther and John Calvin. They, they were historicists. And specifically, they saw a lot of the chapters that we're going to study in Revelation over the coming weeks as being fulfilled in their time as they push back against the corruption in the Roman Catholic Church. Next one is the futurist perspective. This is the one that probably most Christians are familiar with. This is the one that vaguely has to do with like rapture, seven years of tribulation, mark of the beast thrown in there, uh, antichrist rise to power, wars and rumors of war, all uh, preceding the final coming of Jesus in power and glory. And then there's kind of a thousand year reign which people have some trouble figuring out how it all fits together. But this is kind of like the left behind series. This looks at Revelation and says almost everything in Revelation hasn't happened yet. So it's the polar opposite of the preterists. The preterists say, we're studying history. The futurists would say, no, we're studying stuff that have yet to take place. So they see all the, almost all the events in Revelation as unfulfilled prophecies that, the last, that will really happen in a very tight timeline right before Jesus returns. And then the last view is the idealist or the spiritualist view. Sorry, one proponent of the futurist view within the Reformed tradition would be John MacArthur. Last one, the idealist or the spiritualist view, this would be advocated by a Reformed theologian, Kevin DeYoung. The idealist view would say, the way you should read Revelation is it's basically a uh, allegory for what always happens to Christians when the kingdom of God breaks against the kingdom of darkness in any age, in any locality in the world. So it's totally practical for every Christian. It's not just meant for, it wasn't just given so that Christians in the first century could benefit from it, or just Christians could unlock the keys of fulfilled prophecy right before Jesus comes back. It says as long as the church endures, then what's going to happen is we're going to see these patterns repeated over and over. So it's not like there's the mark of the beast. There's like many marks of the beast that get cycled throughout history. There's many antichrists who rise to power. There are many um, dragons which assert themselves as a powerful warring empire out of the sea. So they would say, we are meant to understand Revelation as equipping the church in every age to be aware of the patterns that happen when light clashes with darkness. This would be, again, advocated by a Reformed theologian, let's say, like Kevin DeYoung. Now, why do I talk about Reformed theologians? We're not a Reformed church in the strict sense. Reform refers to a particular track of Christian tradition. The reason why I link Reformed thinkers to each of these four different views is because it should give us pause when we come across other teachers or when we are tempted to say, well, I've been exposed to this teaching of Revelation. Totally makes sense. This is how you understand it. Because of four really smart, highly educated, insightful, very exegetically careful teachers within the same Christian tradition who aren't like split in their church, like they're unified together in the gospel. But they would say, one would say, I think we're studying history when we study Revelation for the most part. And the other would say, we're studying stuff that hardly any of it's happened. That should just kind of give us pause to say, hey, this is a complex book and we shouldn't rush to assume that 
maybe because we have a, we listen to a cluster of people who are teaching one view that doesn't necessarily, we, we need to recognize that is not like the Christian view. We might come to convictional, um, we might come to convictions around, I think this is the best view or the strongest view, but I want us to be aware through Revelation and I wanted to show us how these different views read and interpret and then apply these signs and symbols that we're going to talk about. And again, that's not to undermine anyone's convictions around, I think this is really important because all those people are going to agree on the majors of the, the core th- uh, themes of Revelation. But it's when we get into the particulars around some of these signs and symbols, there's going to be divergence. And understanding that will help us walk with some humility. Okay, so that's where we are in Revelation. Uh, we're not going to continue into those chapters today because I kind of want to have a bridge message. And it has to do with our reaction during times of suffering and upheaval and change. Um, one of the patterns you'll notice in your own life, and people around you, when people move into suffering, encounter real suffering, the first response is often to grapple with why, to try to figure out why that is happening. Why me? Why now? Why this? And as Christians, I hope part of our instinct is to go back into Scripture and to look and to try and dig and to seek God and to be like, I want to understand why this is happening. We're trying to look for a cause for the suffering so that obviously we can address it and maybe get out of the suffering. And in a pandemic, this is kind of happening across the church and across localities and across denominations because we're all, to a certain extent, suffering because of the pandemic. We're all frustrated to a certain extent, or angry, or fearful and anxious, whether it's because of the pandemic itself, or the response that's being taken where we live to the best way to move into and through the pandemic, and we're combing the Bible, and we're trying to listen to other people, and because now so much of the church has gone online, we're being exposed to more and more teachings, podcasts, and we're trying to cobble together and figure out, like, what in the world is God doing? How do we make sense of this? Is there a way that we can put all these disparate pieces together so that all these broken pieces come together to form a picture where we're like, oh, okay, I get it. That's what's happening. Okay, that gives me closure. And one of the books that's definitely getting extra attention during this time are books like Revelation, prophetic books, where people are trying to say, oh, oh, yeah, I know what's happening. Like this has been foretold here. This sign here connects with here. And we're kind of doing this... um, investigative process of tying revelation to modern events. And the chapters that we're going to be moving into in Revelation get a lot of this, a lot of this attention. Because at first pass, they're striking enough to be like, whoa, that seems really serious. But they're also vague enough that they allow us to kind of be like, whoa, it could be this, it could be that. Maybe it's this person, maybe it's that person, maybe it's this situation, maybe it's COVID, maybe it's something else. And I've seen this happen a lot when Christians get into a state where there's kind of this um, broader uh, signaling noise around something anxious on the horizon at a social or global level. We can start to react and jump at trying to make things make sense maybe too quickly. Does anyone remember Y2K? For two years before Y2K, I was hearing different Christian teachers talk about 
this is it, this is being fulfilled, this is happening here. I was reading people like Grant R. Jeffrey who were saying divest of all your um, uh, stock investments, convert it all to gold bullion because there's gonna be massive economic devastation. We're gonna be talking about, you, know, you talked about one of the horsemen of the apocalypse and tie that into how that's gonna happen. And then there's nothing. Right? And the next thing was the, the Iraq war, the invasion of Iraq for sure, absolutely. This is Gog and Magog, precursor to the Battle of Armageddon found in these chapters of Revelation. We're living in the end times, absolutely. The temple's gonna be rebuilt. There's the red heifer and the blood moons and everything else. And then that kind of happened and came and went and didn't seem to trigger any apocalyptic uh, events. It's very tempting as Christians, and we need to be careful that we're not allowing the uncertainty of the present moment to skew our reading and application of Scripture. That's a perpetual challenge for all of us, especially when we're going through things in our own life that could get us off balance. But it's really, really important when, in a sense, the church globally is trying to figure this out together. We want to be careful, and we want to learn from the past, and we want to be very careful when it comes to arriving at uh, very precise conclusions around, oh, Revelation 15? Yeah, that's what's happening right now, for sure. We might come to a conviction. We might say, hey, this seems to make a lot of sense. I'm not sure. But we have to walk humbly. Because not only do Christians, again, disagree, are going to disagree about how to understand those symbols in light of current events, Christians aren't even going to agree on the book of Revelation in terms of some of the details. So that should give us not a sense of like, well, you can't understand anything in the Bible. That's not true. You can understand a lot. And you can understand a lot in Revelation. But it should give us pause to reflect on the ways that we might be um, participating in patterns that will lead us to be misinformed and maybe take us down directions that aren't really, really helpful. And part of why I want to continue teaching through Revelation is I want to provide us with some guardrails so that we don't get caught up in kind of end times, fulfilled Bible prophecy rabbit holes that I think for many Christians, from my perspective, actually distracts them from genuine discipleship to Jesus. It can kind of become this never-ending vortex that they get pulled into and they can't disengage and I think focus on the main thing. And that's especially tempting to have happen right now. There there are all kinds of forces that are coming together that have never uh, come together before that are making the ability for Christians to get trapped in something really, really easy. Number one, you've got social media where ideas can spread very, very fast. Layer that with just a pervasive sense of frustration that everyone's feeling. Everyone's trying to buck the narrative and, 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 and see through what's really happening, what's really going on, and kind of, un, you know, wanna, you want to like kneel, be able to see through the matrix and see the programming that lies underneath. And now we have more time on our hands. We have less social engagements, fewer activities, which means more time on social media, which means more time exposing ourselves to other people's ideas. And then if we don't have all of the tools or some good solid tools to understand discernment, we can start building momentum in a certain direction because we're reading or listening or sitting under the teaching of people who, who knows if they're qualified 
mean, I, I've had people send me stuff and say, you've got to read this, you've got to watch this. And I can't even figure out the qualifications of these people teaching this stuff. It's not even available. It's just a blog that someone wrote, right? It's a blessing of the internet. You have huge access to all kinds of information. But just because someone writes a blog on end times theology and throws scriptures around and makes you dizzy because you're like, wow, this person really knows their stuff. Well, I can throw lots of scriptures around. It doesn't make, I mean, I know anything. We have to have some tools and some scaffolding to be able to say, this person might be well-intended, but mm, I'm not sure. I talked about that spidey sense tingling where you could kind of hear people and kind of say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do a little bit of fact-checking there. I'm going to talk to some my pastor, some other people that I know, other resources. And you put these things together, and we are primed right now to fall prey to what I would call toxic theology, specifically around end-time stuff and how we should respond as Christians. Now, toxic theology isn't always wedded to end-time stuff. Um, It can be, and often is during a pandemic, because that's sort of foregrounded. But there are just patterns of toxic theology that can play out in all kinds of ways. And when I say toxic theology, I'm talking about a distortion of the content of the Bible that is usually grounded in a very kind of perverse fixation on a few verses or a few themes. So toxic theology, theology is just the process of learning what the Bible says, who God is, who we are, how we're called to live. Toxic theology is when that gets skewed somehow, corrupted, it gets poisoned, it gets distorted, and it still uses scriptures and language and it sounds Bible-y, but at its heart, it really can, it's hard sometimes to notice right at the start, but it, it bends us into a tra- trajectory that can lead us down some really dark paths. At the worst, it can lead us down paths toward like cults. But even in its more milder forms, it can just create fixations within us and it can get us distracted from the main things of our faith. And I have seen and experienced, whether it was Y2K, which was for me, or Gulf War or other events, the Obama administration, the Trump administration, uh, COVID, pandemic, I have seen really sincere, genuine Christians get taken in by toxic theology because it can get your hooks into you and uh, pull, you, pull you under before you kind of uh, realize what's going on. Or it can lead to people around you rejecting Christianity um, because you or what they're hearing some Christians only talk about is this and they think, well, that seems weird or they intuit that like, that just seems like extreme or really strange and they reject that and they think what they're doing is rejecting Christianity because that's all they've been told Christianity is, and they're actually just rejecting a really distorted, fixated message on this. And a lot of the work that I've been doing over the pandemic, which has been really rewarding, is sitting down with non-Christians. For whatever reason, for them, this has gathered gathered up enough momentum that they say, I want to talk to someone about this, but they don't want to see a therapist or a counselor or psychologist, not because they don't value them, but they want to understand a spiritual perspective. Or they have questions about the Bible. Maybe they have some Sunday school in their background or they have a friend or they watch something on YouTube and they want to get down and talk to -to face-to-face with someone and I'll talk with them. And not in every case, but in many cases, it's been uh, pretty sad to discover a lot of these people have... um, conflated 
a particular kind of toxic theology that they were exposed to as a child or teenager and thought that's what Christianity is. So they rejected it because the Christians in their life, and you know, I'm sure the misunderstanding goes both ways, but their perception was, I had Christians or in the church culture that I was exposed to or from what I've read about evangelicals or Christians, this is all that, that matters to them. And so it's very important for us as Christians to know revelation enough that we can cut the legs out from under really wacky stuff and understand some of the dynamics at play with toxic theology so that we can help people disconnect from those wrong, toxic understandings of who God is, who they are, how they're called to live, and help lead them gently and often very slowly into a more robust, faithful, biblical vision to those questions. So in thinking about toxic theology and how I'm seeing it kind of raise its head in the context of end times and the pandemic, I just started writing down all the different characteristics or warning signs that toxic theology may be at play in your life or that you may have fallen prey to toxic theology. And this is where Glenn's joke comes in because I have 18 points, but I'm not going to teach on those 18 points anywhere full. This is going to be rapid fire, and what I want you to do is just be attentive to one, two, three things that stick out for you because almost, well, I think every Christian, you, you would have been exposed to toxic theology at some point. Um, and it would have probably bent and shaped your faith in a really negative way. And it's important for you to do the work of saying, that's something I do believe about God or about what it means to be a Christian, and it's wrong, and I need to change, I need to repent of that wrong view. I was told by someone that's what it means to follow Jesus, and I realize now that isn't. And that can give a lot of freedom. So we're doing this so that we can kind of detox, become aware of like, oh, this actually isn't like, Jesus-centered Christianity. This is just like some kind of weird, maybe well-intended Christianese hybrid of a religious system that has been distorted. Maybe it started good, but it's been distorted. And I picked up on that somewhere. And this can be a process where you begin to sort of say, okay, this is something I picked up and it's not true and I need to go in a different direction. And that way you can be a force for good in the lives of other people who have been exposed to toxic theology that has these kinds of characteristics. So, I'm not going to do a huge amount of explanation, but I do want to make this very clear. If there is something here that you underline, that you circle, that you're like, I got to write that down, I got to remember that, and you want to follow up with me about it, please do. I don't want to hear, I know you're really busy, I'm sure you got a lot of people to talk to, blah, blah, blah. This is really, really important work. People are my work as a pastor. I want you to reach out and say, could we just sit down and I just kind of want to process this a little bit. Uh, that's really important to me to make sure that you know that I'm available for that if any of these prompt you in that direction. Number one, toxic theology is often centered on a few main texts or themes. People or, or ministries that are, or, or people who only focus on like end time stuff or only focus on spiritual warfare or only focusing on sexual purity in teens or only focused on you fill in the blank. Toxic theology tends to get distorted when even things that are important get overemphasized. Even something like God is love. You can overemphasize that to a point where it actually becomes distorted and it will draw you away from faithfulness to Scripture and faithfulness to Jesus. 
So just be aware of not being kind of like a one-note Christian. Number two, toxic theology promotes speculation and arguments. If you find yourself or you know people who are just always, it feels like the only way to engage with scriptural ideas is to argue about them. And there's kind of that anger and frustration that's always under the surface. Uh, that's, that's not a good sign. And right now that's really happening when you get revelation and certain Bible verses connected with like conspiracy theory and Bill Gates and the vaccine, the pandemic and global cabals. And you have these conspiracy theories where people are like, oh, we got to fight this. And why isn't my church preaching about this? And we got to do something about it. Well, and the reason why we're not preaching about it and the reason why we're not doing anything about it is because we're commanded in Isaiah 8, uh, where the prophet Isaiah says, this is what the Lord says to me with a strong hand upon me, meaning like embracing you, you listen to this, right? It's like a dad holding onto his child's shoulder and saying like, look me in the eye, I got something to tell you. And God says to the prophet, don't call a conspiracy everybody that this people call a conspiracy, don't fear what they fear. Do not dread what they dread. The Lord Almighty, he is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to dread. Israel was looking around at all the nations, all the kings and the alliances and saying, oh, what's going to happen? I've heard rumors that over here, these two kings are going to form together. And if they do, we've, we've got to be ahead of the curve and trying to figure out this. And, and these kings are conspiring. And they had all these conspiracy theories. And God says, that is none of your concern. You're fearing these kings. That is wrong fear. You fear me. I own you. I'm in charge. You put your eyes on me. You follow me today. I'll take care of you tomorrow. Don't get caught up in trying to anticipate 12 steps ahead. You follow me today. It's a different way of saying, give us today our daily bread. But what about like in January, where's the bread going to come from? Who's making the bread? What are the, you know, and Keep your eyes on me. God, give me today my daily bread. I'll take care of you tomorrow if you focus on me today. Toxic theology often doesn't allow for joy or the enjoyment of creation. It tends to be very closed, very rigid, very somber. Um, laughter and joy and just a relaxed enjoyment of life and the gifts of God. Um, if you've been influenced by toxic theology, that will always be twinged with a little bit of guilt. And you will always feel, there always feel this pull towards like, like serious, so like laughter a little bit, like, <laughs> but like right back, serious, somber. That's toxic. We are meant to enjoy the gifts that God has given. Scripture talks about how we receive everything as long as it's been sanctified by the word of God in prayer. We're, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Toxic theology also doesn't value questioning or pushback or even any kind of theological um, playfulness. There's only right answers Toxic theology is usually rigid. It's very lifeless. Another characteristic is that it's usually non-holistic, meaning um, it, it, instead of addressing the whole person, it tends to be uh, sort of a silver bullet theology. You may have lots of stuff going on in your life. You may be really challenged by a lot of things. Like the key, though, is this is like intercessory prayer. Like that's it, like this. Or this kind of fasting. Or you got to get into the scripture. And this, is, this often comes up around um, issues that uh, modern secular people would just label broadly mental health, right? I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I'm really struggling with something, and I don't know if it's like I'm not getting enough sleep, or I'm not eating well, or I'm not being active, or if it's like a spiritual attack of some kind, or if it is like a mental health issue that needs medication, I'm not sure. And wise 
understanding of scriptures and our anthropology as it relates to scripture would say, yeah, we don't necessarily know. So we're going to feed health into all those areas. But toxic theology will usually try and have a very reductionistic answer. It's like, oh, you're dealing with depression? Oh, that's because you just don't know the promises of God. Let me write out this prescription for you as your pastor. I want you to memorize these promises of God and that'll be enough to buttress you. That's not um, wrong to encourage people to meditate and, and memorize and reflect on the promises of God. But what toxic theology often does is it overly simplifies solutions to very complex situations of which who we are is often complex. So if you come to me for help and you're saying, I'm struggling with this, um, even if it's something like, I'm struggling with something very specific, my relationship with a son or a daughter, let's say, it's not just about resourcing you in terms of parenting. It's also about saying like, how's your prayer life? How are you engaging the word? How are you eating? How are you sleeping? Tell me about your, your patterns in terms of how you're moving through your day. So we're having all kinds of attendant conversations because we're holistic beings. And usually the solution to our problems is not just one simple thing. Toxic theology pairs precise doctrine with a precise expression of doctrine. And what I mean by that is I like precision around theological terms and ideas and getting really clear, having a high resolution, resolution picture. But what can happen is if theology goes toxic, it can say, this is what we mean by this. This is what we mean by who God is, who we are, how we're called to live. And this is exactly how it would look if you were like a sincere, devoted Christian. It will look like this. It's a very precise expression. This is how you will talk. This is the music you will listen to. This is how you will dress. This is how you will show up to church. And usually what that comes out of is the leader's uh, insecurity slash arrogance. And in a different way, it's the leader projecting onto the community and saying, if you were all faithful Christians, your lives would look a lot like mine. You'd make the same decisions with your time, energy, and money that I would. So toxic theology doesn't give a lot of flexibility to people saying, we're the body of Christ. So of course the life of a thumb is going to look different than the life of a kneecap. That's not something to correct. That is something to celebrate. Toxic theology gives prominence to one or two main teachers. Uh, theology, no matter how good that teacher is, if, if you're kind of like a, that one note teacher, that's not a good thing. You want to have a variety of teachers in your life who are giving you different perspectives. Um, toxic theology will lead you to focus on other people's sin more than your own. It's definitely one good tell that you've been mulling on the wrong ideas or the right ideas in the wrong understanding. When other people's sin stands out to you and that's just kind of jumping out at you and you notice it and you're fixated on it and you're frustrated on it, but your own sin is just kind of like not an issue. What really bothers you is other people's issues. What doesn't seem to really um, vex your own spirit is your own areas where you are not walking faithfully before God. It doesn't mean that we ignore the sins of others, but if we're in a place where that is what's always standing out to us and that's what we're angling to always fix, something's gone toxic. Toxic theology is often anti-intellectual and integrationist. Um, God has given two revelations, special revelation in Scripture, general revelation in His creation. Toxic theology generally just veers towards special revelation and say, that's all you need to worry about. 
That's all you need to learn from. And to learn from anything else, any non-Christian sources, is dangerous. That's actually not a biblical understanding of how we're supposed to um, pursue and access and then incorporate wisdom that God has built into all parts of creation and cultures into what we're doing. Um, Toxic theology will often be very hesitant to absorb anything related to ideas that don't come from a Christian source. And I do not believe that that is wise. God has given us these two revelations, and Luther says we're, we're trying to learn how to fit them together. And maybe they don't always fit together really nicely. There's lots of contention about evolutionary theory and Genesis chapters 1 and 2, let's say. But um, a toxic theology will say we're just going to uh, shut out anybody who's not talking about the scriptures the way we are. Instead of saying, yeah, maybe there's things that we need to learn, right? The church went through that process when they realized, wow, there's, we're not doing anything necessarily wrong, but now we need to change how we read and understand the Bible now that we know that the earth isn't the center of the solar system. The sun is. It doesn't change the core things of faith, but it does cause us to be like, okay, I take that truth to amend how I read and apply scripture. Toxic theology is often grounded in moralism versus gospel rest. And I would say that's just the, the idea that um, toxic theology emphasizes what you need to do in order to be loved and accepted by God. And the, although it might not be stated explicitly, the implicit message is like, you've got to be hitting your marks. You've got to be performing religiously. That's how you secure and hold on to God's blessing and love in your life, as opposed to gospel rest, which says Jesus did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. He rescued you. He saved you. He, he's adopted you. All this is not from yourselves. You can't boast about it. It's a gift. Now that we are secure, now that God's love and blessing, we're in the family of God. I am a child of God. Now, yes, do I learn to live differently and learn to live more righteously? Yes. But it's not from a place of threat that says, well, you better straighten up or fly right, otherwise you're out of the family. Jesus has secured us. We go on the journey with him to grow and mature, but there's not the threat of God pulling the rug out from under us. But sometimes that people have gotten that message that that's actually the heart of the Christian life. Toxic theology often presents itself as ahistorical. It's a fresh revelation. It has no broader historical context to consider. Every once in a while on YouTube, I see little ads that are like, for 2,000 years, this secret biblical recipe has been hidden until some Polish lady in 1942 discovered it, and it will unleash untold, and all this stuff, and you're like, okay, like right away, right? Like, that's just like wacky, 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 and uh, we can reject that out of hand. Toxic theology will always just try and present something new or that no Christians discovered till now where we've unlocked some kind of special Holy Ghost power that Scripture doesn't speak to, the history of the church doesn't because that was just meant for this time right now and we've got to kind of roll with it. Solid theology will always ground God's working in the history of Scripture and the history of the church. Toxic theology also uh, doesn't attend to the full range of human emotion. Um, this is maybe especially prevalent and really well-meaning, um, I hate to throw them under the bus, but it's a, it's a little bit more of a temptation for charismatic or Pentecostal churches where the attitude is a little bit more like happy, clappy Sunday morning. 
always happy, always excited, pumping ourselves up. The joy of the Lord is our strength. We're leveraging faith. We're building faith. And that kind of gets wedded with faith is like excitement, it's anticipation, it's uh, enthusiasm. And so if we come to church and we're not in that mode or in that zone, we feel like something's wrong with us or other people are suspicious or we feel like we have to fake it to make it. How you doing, Jeff? Well, on the inside, I'm crumbling, but like, God is good all the time. Here we go. Let's go. I'm here to worship. Awesome. Now, there, is there a place to challenge ourselves out of certain moods? For sure. But toxic theology kind of says there's kind of one acceptable emotional train expression to be on. And we kind of hold in suspicion people who can't get on that train. And so if you come to church or you've had the experience where you don't feel in an appropriate way, if someone says, hey, how you doing? To say, oof, honestly, not great. Like I barely got here. I was so tempted to stand bad. I've had such a hard week. I just, whatever. I mean, it's appropriate boundaries of sharing. I know it's not always, you know, just going to say to a stranger, this is everything going on in my life. But a healthy theology will allow you to bring all of the range of human emotion to God and to other Christians in trusted relationships. You're not going to have to fake it to make it. Um, toxic theology is more concerned about the outside of the cup than the inside, right? It's much more about, like, the, you know, um, this is like the ideal Christian family, the ideal Christian marriage. This is the ideal Christian. You prop those people up. And so the people that are kind of like showpieces get promoted to under the lights kind of things instead of saying, is actual transformation of the heart happening? Toxic theology is primarily motivated by fear, anger, suspicion instead of humility and curiosity. Toxic theology operates from a fundamental view of God as cold, and harsh and distant and a taskmaster, right? A religious or a moral taskmaster. If we're tempted by those thoughts, if we associate those words predominantly with God, like that's a pretty clear sign our theology has gotten warped and distorted somewhere. Toxic theology breeds a kind of fatalism or pessimism. This is especially true with Revelation, right? If, if you're a futurist who believes what you're reading about in Revelation is there, there's going to be like the world's, you, at first pass, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. I mean, that's what it looks like it's going to happen before Jesus comes. So what you're expecting is this trajectory of like, life's okay right now, but like, you wait. It's just going to get worse and worse and worse. The problem with that is if it becomes a point through which you allow yourself to justify being inactive as things go terribly wrong. We're destroying the environment. Well, that's going to happen before Jesus comes back. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars and all these injustices. And what are you going to do, right? Like, it's kind of the signs of the times. Like, nowhere in Scripture are we given permission, even if God did say things are going to get worse. Christians don't have permission to lean into that narrative. The assumption, even if you are a futurist, is that the world is getting worse while Christians are fighting for the world's best in terms of glorifying God and loving their neighbors. But if your theology actually allows you to be comfortable with neighbors, communities, nations, just getting obliterated, torn apart, increased division, people starving to death, and you just kind of sit back and they're like, well, yeah, like, that's what the Bible says, though. It's going to get worse before Jesus comes. There's a toxicity there, right? That's an unhealthy, it's not, it's not priming you to respond. It's actually empowering you just lay back and fiddle while Rome burns.
Two more. Toxic theology is isolationist. Um, if you've been exposed to an environment that teaches you to be very distrustful towards non-believers, avoid their con- the contamination that might happen. You might catch unbelief, like you're going to catch COVID. So like hold them at bay. And not even unbelievers, but like not as serious or good as you Christians. Watch out. Because, you know, in order to be pure, you've got to stay pure. You've got to protect your kind of Christian moral purity. That's the way the thinking would go. Now, again, I would hope that you would see that's completely counter to the pattern of Jesus who goes out into the darkness as a light, who commands his apostles to do it. The apostles command the early churches to do it. The only time where Christians are called to withdraw or to expunge someone from their presence is another Christian who talks a big game about being a Christian but is actually in serious unrepentant sin. Then you are, Paul says in Corinthians, you're to excommunicate them so that they don't influence other people. But the fundamental posture should be I am integrated into this community. I have Christians and non-Christian friends. I have Christian friends who yeah, they love Jesus for sure. They have some weird ideas about stuff, but I still love them and I learn with them and I break bread with them and we go on hikes together and I learn from each other and I listen to them and I value them. I know God is at work in their life and I'm thankful for them. And I'm thankful for my non-Christian friends and how they keep me honest about my faith and how to engage with them. And then lastly, a toxic theology culture will just have difficulty embracing change or a diversity of expression of discipleship. And I mentioned that before a little bit in terms of Um, instead of saying we're all called to follow Jesus we're all following Jesus but that doesn't mean it has to look exactly the same way we're going to choose different jobs we're going to choose how to prioritize our time energy and money differently and as long as we're all sensitive to God's spirit and willing to challenge and encourage one another we don't have to walk in uniformity like that's that's like a cult right where it's like we dress the same way we talk the same way we do the same things we structure our days the same way we prioritize the same things in the same ways. It's like, no, like we're a body. God uses our diversity and our individuality in really important ways. Now, I highlight some of these things to say that right now we're particularly vulnerable, all of us are, to the influence of toxic theology because um, of anger, pandemic, more time, some of those variables that I talked about before, those can coalesce and make us really fall prey to toxic theology, where we really start going down certain rabbit holes and distorting the importance of certain things. But we can also nurture it in ourselves as we only listen to certain people, certain Christians, and we enter into a purity spiral where more and more people and more and more Christians around us aren't, they don't get it, they don't, they don't see what we see, I see through it. I can't even talk with these people anymore because they just don't get it. Like, I've just been so enlightened. I, I see kind of, I've cut through all the haze, and now there's really just like, my family, and that's tearing down to like me and my spouse, and now a few weeks later, it's like my spouse isn't even, doesn't even see it, right? You can get into this purity spiral where no one's ever um, in tune enough with what's really going on, and that happens to Christians and to people in these times of deep unsettlement, so just be aware of that. Here's how to detox. Four things. I'm not really going to go into them too much. Number one, disconnect from sources of toxic theology. Put a heart, soul, mind learning plan in place, which means puts a, put a holistic plan for growth in place. 
Don't just focus on one particular theme or teacher. Learn to dip into a whole bunch of stuff. You're interested in end time stuff? Awesome. Dip into uh, a, a book of the Bible that you haven't read in a long time. Go into Proverbs. Do a study on parenting. Number three, befriend and listen carefully to not like you Christians. And lastly, grapple with ideas, but love and bless people. That's really important during these times. We can grapple with ideas, we can push back, but we want to be loving and have a posture of blessing towards people. Yes, even our enemies. Yes, even people who are against us and would love to see us um, face all kinds of difficulty because of our faith. So for following Jesus, we can expect to lead him into depth and maturity, and that will be leading us out of some of these toxic patterns that are connected to toxic theology. Toxic theologies really do impede our depth of both our understanding of God and our expression of faith into the world, and, um, and they impede our growth, right? Things can't grow if they're actively being poisoned at the same time. And so, to echo back into 1 Corinthians 16, we need to be on our guard. We need to stand firm in the faith. And then as we move back into these chapters in Revelation, they're really strange and weird and wacky. Let's have courage. Let's allow ourselves to be strengthened by good perspectives on these things so that we do what Revelation is supposed to do, which is lead us into a vision for how to uh, do all things in love. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for truth that can set us free from these kind of, uh, these chains, these um, toxic influences that I know are are present in many people's lives. Um, I don't know where all the roots come from, but I pray that uh, you would and a work in us this week to... uh, to uproot some of that toxicity and to plant us by streams of living water. For your name's sake, amen.